Welcome back to Strange Exiles, a podcast about ideas, identity and ideology. I'm Brammy Gibbon, and this month I was speaking to an old friend, writer and practicing magician Ian Cat Vincent. Cat and I met a few years back through comic book forums and I went on to publish some of his early writing. He later went on to take a big part in uh, the publication and writing of 14 Times. We spent an hour on the phone talking about everything from the archetypes and symbols of superheroes to the subjectivity of weird shit in general. We discussed the uh, super gods theory as put forward by the comics writer Grant Morrison and talked a little bit about Kat's own work with superhero archetypes in his ritual practice. If you've not come across modern magic practice before, we talk a little bit about chaos magic and the roots of magic as it's practiced today by uh, probably a surprising amount of people. Uh, it's a, a very rich subculture. We talked about the notion of authenticity and how much that matters when you're constructing a, a, a ritual practice for yourself. And I asked Kat about the rise of the far right and a kind of accelerationist tendency in magical circles, something that's been a part of the neo-folk scene in the last few years as well. We talked about the roots of science in magic and of course Kat was able to tell us about his work over the last few years including uh, working on an adaptation of Robert Anton Wilson's cosmic trigger for the stage. For now get comfortable and let's get into it with Ian Kat Vincent. So I wonder if we could kick off by getting you to introduce yourself. Tell us um, who you are and um, kind of what your uh, role is in society. I'm Cat Vincent. I was christened Ian Vincent, but I got nicknamed Cat at school and it stuck. I've been a magician for nearly 50 years, practicing since uh, literally since I was about seven years old. Um, life got weird. I had to find some way of dealing with it um, and using the metaphors of magic and the occult were my way through and since then i've um yeah i've been doing weird shit for people both professionally and just you know as favors then i started to write about it about 15 years ago which i as i recall you were the first person to ever publish me <laughs> that's right back in the weaponizer days way back in weaponizer which was such a boost for me and after that, I actually became a professional Fortean journalist. Um, somehow managed to get myself considered a world authority on the subject of the Slender Man, um, which I did the Fortean Times cover article for back in the day. And um, yeah, since then, I've been doing like spoken word stuff and uh, workshops teaching people how to access weird shit without having to jump through all the kind of hoops that traditional magic and witchcraft say they have to. So in short, I do bad weird shit. <laughs> Excellent. So, I mean, um, I guess a place to start, you know, if we're unpacking this for an audience that might not be familiar with it, would be to kind of have a look into what, what, what do you define as magic, if that's not too huge a question? That's always just the hugest question. There's... Ah, that old bastard, Alistair Crowley. His definition of magic 
was the art and science of causing change to occur in conformity with the will. And later on, a writer, an American feminist witch called Starhawk, amended that into quite a nice, concise version, which is magic is the art of changing consciousness according to the will. The idea being that, to a degree, we filter out an awful lot of shit just physiologically. Our senses are very limited, they're very narrow, there's a lot of stuff we filter through. Of the stuff that actually gets through, all of that gets filtered again through our our consciousness, the symbol sets that we've developed, either talked to us in childhood, learnt at school, or developed ourselves. So there's like two layers of filters. There's the physiological one of sense data, and then there's how we interpret sense data. Um, so when something odd happens, you interpret it very much on the basis of that internal set of maps and what a magician does is that they use those maps to try and affect their minds in such a way as to perhaps tweak reality a little bit or at least to seem to even if it's just kind of positive thinking kind of trick to make your brain work better and there's an awful lot of people on the kind of atheist materialist side of chaos magic who would use that as as their ongoing metaphor is just the idea of oh I'm just I'm just tricking my consciousness to do weird stuff. But those of us who think that doing that weird stuff can actually affect reality even on some small level, we chain together bunches of symbols or we borrow symbols from other societies, cultures, the past, and we filter that information that we get through those. So. That thing where you get a synchronicity, where you're sort of walking along and, you know, the, the classic one here, the great discording one, is seeing the number 23, like, everywhere. Once you read Illuminatus or done any of that stuff, the number 23 just keeps fucking popping up. Now, is that just you're noticing it more? Or have you somehow affected reality so that it actually comes up more? Um, we can't really know the answer. There's, I don't think there's any way that you can objectively say which of those is true. But if you assume the weirder answer, you can have a lot more fun. <laughs> Excellent. So I guess when people think about magic and the occult, you know, certain things come to mind. Um, they might place magic along the lines of fairies and J.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and, uh, you know, that that that, occult, that that British tradition going all the way back to Shakespeare um, they, and probably beyond that as well. Um, but they might think of it as something apart from the world. And same with the occult, they might have negative associations with that, think it's kind of devil worship. Uh, you know, summoning demons. But from what you're saying, it sounds like, uh, you know, a modern magician might view magic more as a combination of, you know, the, the symbol reading that almost goes into an academic knowledge of culture combined with a kind of approach that's almost psychological. Would that be fair to say? That's certainly fair to say about some people, particularly on the tendency that generally gets called chaos magic. I mean, I hang out with a lot of the guys who would identify as chaos magicians. But for me, it's never a term I've been quite comfortable with. I always prefer either multi-model, after Robert Anton Wilson, or post-modern magician. Because I, um, my own 
readings in it though i'm not an academic I've, i dove quite deep into uh, postmodernism poststructuralism um, lot of stuff from baudrillard about hyper real mm. uh, was, was a big influence on, on my thinking on that um and but yeah there's some people who will just roll with the traditional stuff they've got they tap into an ancestral kind of current um whether it's an actual quote tradition there's a lot of people who think that for instance wicca you know, the, the, the modern idea of witchcraft is an incredibly ancient thing and it was passed down from mother to daughter through thousands of years past the burning times and through to now when it's in fact like less than a hundred or so years old um was basically invented by gerald gardner after nicking a whole bunch of alistair crowley's ceremonial notes and hanging out with a couple of um, the old traditional cunning folk. He combined that lot and made a kind of formal practice of it. Um, and there's a lot of people who who work in those kind of stuff. There's people who work in actual um, traditions that you can show have a, a, a background. A lot of those would be um, African diaspora religions and systems, such as Voodoo, Santeria, all those guys, where they... They hid it in Catholicism, used elements of Catholicism as kind of a cover story. And so the, the Loire that they, they work with were identified as saints. And that way they could smuggle a lot of the older traditions, stuff they brought in from Africa during slavery and so on. And all those things kind of mixed together into various different kinds of blends. So that is a tradition where you can show. So people have been doing that kind of work for centuries and actually show a, a through line. But the thing is that I've found in fiddle-arsing around with all this stuff for like half a century is that you can go that way or you can literally just make shit up and if you're if you have some practice in doing this generally or if you're just so inclined then you can make that stuff work one of the uh things that chaos magic was notorious for introducing was the idea that you can work with pop culture entities um, this was first suggested, I suppose. Yeah, Rob Anton Wilson was really kind of like the first big popularizer of that. Although there's elements of it that go back to, um, oh God, I can't remember the bugger's name. Kenneth Grant. Kenneth fucking Grant. Because what happened with Kenneth Grant is during his fascinating but kind of interminable series of books there's nine of these fuckers and they're huge the typhonian trilogies it's literally a trilogy of trilogies but he was the first guy to put forward the idea that hb lovecraft's cthulhu mythos could be used as magical current he treated it as though it was real that that lovecraft genuinely had a contact with some kind of occult force this influenced his writing um probably not true lovecraft was notorious for writing letters and keeping diaries we've got all that information and he never actually studied or practiced magic as far as we can tell but that idea got planted and then robert anton wilson in cosmic trigger started talking about the idea of um using mr spock for example as an archetype of rationalism of logic but also of as kind of like a, a liminal character being half human half falcon and he was, compared him to the um peyote spirit papa mescalito 
And there's a cute little drawing in Cosmic Trigger where you've got a picture of Spock and you've got a picture of Miscalito who looks kind of like an elf with the pointy ears. And, and so, so between the two of them, in the early mid-70s, this idea was planted so that you could work in pop culture and treat that as a belief system. Uh, the trick in Chaos Magic is that you can work with the belief system temporarily. You do not have to convert to a faith. You can just for the purpose of, of the experiment, of the ritual, say, right, for this one, I am going to believe in Batman. Batman is going to be a loire for me, a, a spiritual connection. He's going to be the archetype of vengeance, of darkness, of honour, of strength and all the other stuff you can associate with Batman. And so you, you get a picture of Batman, you put him on the altar, you watch a lot of Batman movies and stuff starts to happen. Um, and you start getting that little kind of tickle, that chill up your spine, that autonomous sensory meridian response feeling, that tingly thing. You know, you get, there's something moves you emotionally. And you just get that chill up your spine. Um, a lot of magicians try to generate that and, and they kind of use that as, as their energy. It's like the chi is moving when they're focusing on this thing. Um, so, I mean, I've, I've actually run a group on Facebook that I inherited from a writer called Taylor Elwood, who's written two excellent books on pop culture magic. A couple of years ago, I inherited his Facebook group. And so we talk about this idea all the time. Um, this is this is actually weirdly this makes for quite a good example on how the idea of a canon in both literature and the occult can be a really dodgy consideration uh, because um, obviously in, in magic well, you've got the thing as you said with, with Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and those kind of traditions which come very much from both a rural and a Christian background. Um, which that kind of tilts their theology and, and their internal mechanisms quite considerably. But there's later writers who, who worked with magic, such as uh, my beloved um, and sadly departed friend Diana Wynne-Jones, who was a huge influence on writers like Neil Gaiman. Um, but she never let herself be limited by that kind of Christian thing. And Diana was interesting because she actually studied English under Tolkien at Oxford. Um, and grasped him up because he kept bunking off, giving them lessons to fuck off and go and write Lord of the Rings. And she thought she was getting an insufficient education as a result. Um, so, yeah, you have this idea of like setting up a, a kind of literary canon of this widespread of, of stories, but they all come from a very similar route. But then you go back and, and you look at Batman, you think there's 80 fucking years of Batman. Which one am I going to work with? Am I going to work with the original one who like used guns? Am I going to work with the Adam West one? Because, you know, there's always that sense of ludicrousness in magic, which I think is something people can be really, really po-faced about this shit. Like, really, really just po-faced. Not, they take themselves so seriously that it kind of makes them fragile. Because I find if, if you can actually like take your magic seriously when you're doing it, but then step back and take the piss out of yourself a bit, then that is immensely beneficial. And this comes back to a line of Austin Spares, where he talks about the importance when you're doing this kind of weird shit to treat the stuff that happens to you as if 
it was real, but not as real. That slight difference of, of withdrawing from it, of being not not a true objectivity, because this this is the most subjective field of endeavour I think humans have ever come up with. It's all so intensely personal when you're talking about magic and weird shit. Even if you're completely copying someone else's work, even if you just take an ancient grimoire and work with it. And, and there's people who do excellent work with that. There's a guy called Jake Stratton Kent, who is a superb writer, ex heavy into chaos magician, uh, working class lad, um, and just decided he was going to study the old school grimoires and has become kind of an expert on it. And so he worked basically all his magic just works from one single grimoire, uh, the Grimoire Verum, the Green Book. And he gets amazingly good, solid magical results out of that. But at the same time, he's aware of the chaos magic tradition. So he's able to explore those things without necessarily swallowing the entire theology. And I think that's an important thing is you, you, you can't believe that what you're doing inside your head, however big and grandiose and spectacular it seems inside your own head, it's not necessarily that impressive, interesting or useful to anybody outside it can be sometimes sometimes you can have a connection with people and and share ideas and that works really well but most of the time it's people arguing about oh no you can't do that your candle colors too wrong uh, but the the thing that i always admire most about chaos magic is the fact that it's completely prepared to adjust itself on the basis of of actual experience that it will it's developed as an idea. I mean, if you, if you go online and you start talking about chaos magic, invariably what you'll get, and this is partly Grant Morrison's fault, is, oh, it's just drawing sigils and wanking on them. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of become the great trope of, of chaos magic these days, but there's a lot more going on to it than that. And, and the better writers, the, uh, the group that came out of um, Stoke Newington in London and in Leeds, from um, the people who used to go to the shop Sorcerer's Apprentice. I talk about people like Pete Carroll, Phil Hine, Dave Lee, Ramsey Dukes, the original um, Illuminates of Thanateros, the IOT, the first ever chaos magic organisation, um, were drawing ideas from fractal mathematics and old traditions. A big influence was Terry Pratchett early Terry Pratchett, because the idea of the eight colours of magic, which has become the absolute bedrock of of their system, is that there are eight kinds of magic. Each one is set to a particular set of emotions. It has a colour, it has a, a whole set of associations to it. But they literally use Terry's pattern, including the eighth one of octarine, the eighth colour, which is the colour of magic itself. Um, and so they drew on that, and they drew on Michael Moorcock. Funnily enough, just a complete digression, which I might cut out of the show, but I've been re reading um, Jonathan Hickman's X-Men run, Dawn of X, House of X, and um, what you were talking about, about the different versions of Batman through the ages, I think what Hickman ha has a kind of Grant Morrisonian ability to take all the different errors of um you know like a a huge section of the of the multiverse of marvel and make them all sing at once and it's it's i uh, you know like if i was going to invoke um 
a set of magical creatures to help me probably the x-men might be where i'd start and he's got them all living on an island like all the bad guys all the good guys all the random minor characters that were a terrible idea from the 90s they're all there oh Um, lovely so that's an act of magical writing for me in the same way that the invisibles was is that you know and he does these wonderful pages where um he's kind of uh, got like inserts which are just kind of world building and they're not comics they're just pages of text uh and funnily enough the 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 latest arc of that is based on the tarot um so do you think there's a sense here here's here's where this actually leads into a question do you think there's a sense where maybe comics have kind of opened the way for like a context where this is able to be talked about in a serious way in public away from those cliches of the occult and of the fairy magic oh absolutely um yeah let me just uh, there's a book on my shelf which i will drag out because it is just it's literally about this um it's by a guy called christopher knowles and it's called our gods wear spandex the secret history of comic book magic um where he he draws on this idea and it's one that morrison also later develops in his book super gods uh the comic book characters have literally become modern pantheon for people who aren't traditionally religious and and want to get away from that because of you know all, all the problems of you know inherited religious beliefs and dogma and fundamentalisms of various kinds that you need something to kind of fill that gap and um, for a lot of people comic book um, mythologies do that job very nicely and uh, they have a tremendous power I mean I, I don't know if Hickman's a practitioner but obviously Grant is and, and Alan is, as well so of course Alan Moore has um, capital letter V views on the subject of uh, how superheroes have badly dented society. Yeah, he's kind of got this riff about infantilization, and I, I think that would be my note of caution about the super gods kind of theory, as as Grant and others have kind of outlined it. It is just how easily they're commodified, and that that I guess goes back to Baudrillard and to um, you know, like the, the the whole idea of the society of the spectacle guided board. Yeah. You know, it, it, if you make if you invest these symbols with power. They can also be co-opted by power. Do you think there's a danger of that with magic becoming more mainstream, that it could be put to deep, more devious ends in a kind of way that's like about controlling society? Or is that already happening? Oh, there were some people who would definitely say that's already happening. Um, the influence of uh, chaos magic on some of the people in um, Vladimir Putin's circle. Are we talking guys like Surkov and things like that? Surkov, yeah, exactly, that guy. Um, as, as, yeah, I mean, there's no question that they, they kind of um, kind of cherry-picked a lot of the ideas out of postmodernism and kind of adapted them far quicker than the left did. Yeah. So they, they, that, that idea of um, the, the quote from an anonymous White House source under... George W. Bush is saying, we create our own reality these days. Um, and, and that's that's been true. And, and they ha- they are using a lot of those kind of classic sigilization techniques in a lot of ways. Um, going back again to Robert Anton Wilson, who was like 
when I first read him in my teens, it was just so influential and important to me. And in the last few years, since I've been doing a lot of work with uh, with other Discordians and kind of like the British current based around the Cosmic Trigger play, uh, we've been doing a lot, a lot of work and a lot of thought on that. Um, which is how I ended up doing a ritual four years ago um, in London of the final showing of the stage version of Cosmic Trigger. This is a live stage performance of Robert Anton Wilson's Cosmic Trigger adapted into a three-hour play by the daughter of Ken Campbell, who was the guy who adapted Illuminatus in the first place, and she didn't want to do that, but she wanted to honour her dad in some way, so she adapted Cosmic Trigger. It's a fantastic play. It's so good. And I was involved quite early on in doing some magic rituals to try and help that happen. Uh, the first one I did was a public ritual in Liverpool on Matthew Street, which is associated with both Carl Jung and the Beatles. It's where the Cavern Club was. And on the site of the Cavern Club is more or less the site that, uh, where allegedly Carl Jung was dreaming of in the dream he describes in Memory, Dreams and Reflections, where he dreamt of Liverpool as the pool of life, a kind of centre of the cosmos, even though he'd never been there. And years later, Ken Campbell established the Science Fiction Theatre of Liverpool in a warehouse just above where the Cavern Club had been and first staged Illuminatus. So we did a ritual there. There's a, a, a tacky Irish pub on the side now. So it was like 50 of us, after having done like a preview of the, the play, went out there. And we did this magical summoning where Daisy Campbell called on, on Eris. Uh, John Higgs did a little bit. The splendid, splendid writer whose work I recommend to literally everybody listening to this, read John Higgs. Um, and, and me. And I did a summoning. Since this was Liverpool and synchronicity and since alan moore had announced he was going to be involved in the play he recorded the voice of the supercomputer fuck up and also did a video as satan this show has alan moore playing satan amazing yeah so on this site i summoned the spirit of john constantine no way why to help us bring enough synchronicity to make the play happen, because that point is being funded, crowdfunded, and we didn't know it was going to happen. Um, so it was like 23rd of February, four years ago, uh, I did this working. And I've been doing a lot of work with Conjob ever since. Really? And I, I established a, a kind of set of rules for working with John Constantine, which is he's fairly biddable. I mean, it's easy to get hold of John Constantine as a magical figure. You, you can read the comics, you can get the little plastic dolls, you can watch the TV show. Um, but there's, there's basically two rules. He likes to drink, he likes his silk cut, but never, ever call him your friend because bad things happen to John's friends. That's a good set of rules. That is completely in canon. Yeah, and I've worked with John quite a few times. We've got this kind of quite buddy-buddy relationship going. You know, like, you know, I picture him in my head, and it's like we have kind of like imaginary conversations, like Socratic dialogues. Um, some people, when they talk about having contacts with spirits, that's what they mean. Is It's like you have a, a version of it in your head that you can like talk to. Some people get things that really do look like actual proper fucking appearances of spirits and the funny thing is john is one of those entities you know the story about how alan moore physically met john constantine 
Uh, I think I have read that. He encountered him in a pub, didn't he? There was a sandwich bar on the south, in the South Park. This was back when he was still writing Hellblazer. And he was sitting there, and, and this guy looks exactly like John Constantine walks in. Like the spit of him. Didn't look like Sting in a trench coat. He looked like John. And Alan was sitting there going, fuck. And the guy kind of like gave him the nod and walked off and then thought to himself, now, now should I go and follow him? Or, or would that not be the best thing to do? And he decided against it. Oh, it's obligatory if you can, if you can talk about Alan, you have to do the voice. So years later, like um, two years ago, as a result of working with um, the Cosmic Trigger crew, I actually got to know Alan. And I had the pleasure of getting stoned with him one night in Northampton and just talking about magic for a few hours. Oh, man. Which is exactly as glorious as you would think. Um, and, I, you know, Alan is a really biddable guy. He's a lovely, lovely man, as long as you don't talk about two things. The comic book industry and Grant Morrison. Mm. If you avoid those two subjects, he's an absolute sweetheart. So we were talking about stuff, and I talked a little bit about how I worked with pop culture stuff, and we were, like, comparing notes and some of the magic rituals that we've done. Um, and I allowed myself this one moment of being a fanboy, where I said to him, mate, I have to thank you for creating John Constantine, because as a working-class magician coming up, there were, there were no archetypes for working-class or urban magic in, in the late, in the, the, yeah, I was born in '64, so this is way before the internet, uh, way before the the wonderful new um, subculture of urban fantasy came up. The only urban magic book that I read before reading Hellblazer was Alan Garner's Elidor. Mm, the classic, lovely, lovely story. It's it's about a group of kids on a bomb site in Manchester in in the late '50s uh, who find a unicorn just running around the back streets of Manchester. Glorious book. But uh, but even there, they're spectators. They're not participants in that sense. They're not magicians. And then in comes John Constantine, aggressively working class. And that was such an inspiration to me and so many other working class magicians coming up. So I just had to allow myself to say, Alan, thank you for creating him. And he paused and all he said with this slightly worried look in his face was, yeah, it was really fucking weird that time he turned up. <laughs> but the thing is, Alan's not the only one he's turned up for. Pretty much everybody who's written Hellblazer and half the people who drew it have had similar encounters. And most of them aren't magicians. I mean, Alan is. But, you know, Garth Ennis isn't. Um... Brian Azzarello had an encounter with him, and, he, and he's really quite sort of materialist, as I understand it. Um, but the guy keeps showing up. And I, and this is one of the reasons why I get really kind of dubious about the idea of traditional magic systems being the be-all and end-all, is because fictional characters show up sometimes more often than the, quote, real gods. Yeah, I mean, by the logic of something like American Gods, um, that would be that would be absolutely consistent because they've got more current kind of belief invested in them, perhaps than yeah, a more traditional figure. Uh, yeah, that's an idea I first glommed onto again from, from an explicitly atheist writer, uh, and that was Harlan Ellison. 
back in 75, I think. He released an anthology, which was one of the books that basically helped me keep my shit together in my teens. Uh, it, was, it was this book, Colin Wilson's The Occult and Robert Anton Wilson. Uh, the collection Deathbird Stories. And in the introduction to that, Harlan has this wonderful long speech about these are the stories of the new gods. The gods of neon, of automobiles and slot machines, of concrete. Because when belief in a god dies, the god dies, is what he said. Those are explicitly exactly the words he used. And a lot of people have connected with this idea. Um, and obviously, I, I don't think that's quite true. I think all these things kind of like wait somewhere, possibly in Alan's idea space. Uh, but there's the potentiality that you can just rediscover an old god and start working with him. And, and they go through currents. Um, there's, there's a real thing at the moment for rediscovering working with the, with the um, Saint Cyprian, who is the patron saint of magic. He's an interesting guy, and a lot of his stuff has been, uh, been absorbed into the African diaspora belief systems through the Spanish and Portuguese traditions. So there's like this whole kind of countercut of working with St. Cyprian as kind of like an intercessor of magicians, who was basically a black magician who got converted into Christianity because he course saw that Jesus was more powerful, blah, blah, blah. But um, so he's got like a whole new cultus developing over the last few years. There chaos magicians like uh, Gordon Wyatt referring to him and then saying that you should work with them. But I'm looking at it and going, it's like, yeah, I mean, that, 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 that's all very well. But I can just literally smoke a silk cart and talk to John. <laughs> and he speaks my language. Everything connects. This is the thing. When you're a magician, it's like everything is connected to everything else. It's like you don't notice when the synchronicities happen. You notice when they stop. Yeah. What are the, the things that I've been involved? Okay, there are three major areas of magic I've been involved with, and we've kind of touched on one of them um, over the last three years, and that's the um, the Discordian stuff I've been doing. The second one, which again I promise we'll get to um, eventually, was when you mentioned Hexit. Yes. Um, the kind of anti-Brexit rituals I've been doing. So this was kind of um, a, a form of political magic. Where, would Absolutely. you say, does this fall under the description of combat magic? Yes. I mean, combat magic was something I worked on a lot because I, I just, when I was younger, when I was first starting out, I was like, so if, if people had weird shit problems, they came to me because I was the weird shit guy. 
And a lot of that stuff is, oh, I think I've got a curse. Which happens to a lot of people. It's like when you have a bad a run of bad luck that seems just really aggressive or something like that. Some people will just go, oh, what's that curse? And I started to like just develop a set of techniques of like talking to people and asking them. And it's like, you know, checking it's not just coincidence or bluntly a mental health issue or something that could be fixed by mundane means. Yeah. Uh, but after that, there was still some kind of really weird stuff. People had like uh, odd objects that, you know, when you feel them, they feel like really cold and tingly. And it's just like, oh, I, th I think there's something wrong with this. It feels like there's a curse in it. And after years of this, I kind of developed a set of techniques um, to try and break these spells, um, to try and remove the bad shit. Uh, the, vo the voodoo and hoodoo term for this would be uncrossing. So that sounds like kind of defensive magic. Yeah, it's defensive, but but so it's I compared it to bomb disposal. Okay. A few times, where the thing is, if I actually knew a guy who was uh, an ex sapper British uh, Army bomb disposal dude, and he was a magician, so we this developed my ideas a lot on that. But the idea that a curse or a spell or anything like that, it's, it's a construction. And if you're going to be a bomb disposal guy, you have to be really knowledgeable about how to build bombs. So through the process of becoming a curse breaker, I became really good at understanding how to build curses. Mm. And I developed a kind of like a whole sort of subset of both techniques and theory about how curses work and how they can be disrupted. And um, so, yeah, um, as a result of, again, through the, the Discordians, um, a guy called James Burt, splendid guy in Brighton, um, connected me up with one of my all-time favourite bands, uh, the independent outfit The Indelicates. Mm. Superb uh, husband and wife team out of uh, Lewis, actually. Um, and it turned out that their, their, their upcoming album three years ago was going to be a protest album about Brexit. It's called Juniper Brecker, German for June criminals, in which they basically took the archetype of Mr. Punch. as kind of like the ultimate nasty villain from British culture. And they said, the Mr. Punch current has continued to the modern day. Jimmy Savile was possessed by Mr. Punch. And so is Boris Johnson. And so they did this album riffing off of this idea. So twice live and a third time last year on, on Halloween of the event, the online event, which is called Hexit. Um, I did this, did this um, set of rituals where, I mean, it was very clear that we couldn't stop Brexit. I mean, after the, um, after the referendum, um, it was very clear that yeah, they were going to make this happen come hell or high water. So what we did instead is we cursed it so that what, what it, even if they did succeed, it wouldn't do them any good and it would just, they wouldn't get anything they actually wanted out of it. And I was very, very specific on laying it into Johnson on mm. the last one or on the Hexit one. Um, it went something like, so, Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson, you consider yourself cut from the same cloth as Winston Churchill. 
Very well then. May the black dog haunt your steps. You will wish you had died in a ditch. Wow. And I mean, funnily enough, he does look fucking haunted these days. Doesn't he? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to like take credit for that, but I'm totally going to fucking take credit for that. <laughs> but in a way, like what you've been saying is that it's less about taking credit for it and more about saying, well, OK, the synchronicity that I desired did occur. So it's more about noticing than it is about causing. Is that right? Yeah, to a great degree. I mean, I, I, I think it's important that a magician be like really, really egomaniacal when they're actually doing the magic. It's like, I have the power within me to force my will onto the entire universe and change it to my whims <laughs> while you're actually doing the work. But once you've done that, you need to step back and go, OK, that was that was really interesting and fun. Um, let's see what synchronicities pop up as a result of that, but not to take credit for it, just to kind of go, okay, that, that makes an interesting pattern. And to try and work for those patterns and those sets of associations and, and build your own language, your own maps. Yeah, and that kind of like echoes what I've read of Austin Speer, where, mm. you know, he talks about the state of neither, neither. Yes. Um, and also, I guess, with the chaos magic stuff, where when you're doing the spell, you kind of have the intent as intensely in your mind as you can. But yes. the after the spell, the better that you can forget it and kind of sublimate it, the better it works. Yeah, one of the great tricks that the IOT like to do after a really big ritual is they banish with laughter. They just stop everything and they just piss themselves laughing. <laughs> yeah. uh, just to kind of break up that very dour, very solemn and kind of pretentious spirit that, that can often hang around behind that. Um, so, yeah, that's, so that's the, the two of the three things that I've been mostly up to in the last five years. The third... Uh, which is why I have some views about the idea of, of, of idea space being perhaps not entirely the full explanation, is working within a fairly recently invented fictional universe called Hookland. Now, Hookland started out as a series of tweets and a couple of um, articles and an online fanzine that was done in the style of kind of like a travel guide, the sort of thing you should be able to get in uh, uh, SO stations. Kind of like you'd, you'd get the, the, the local guide to, your, to whatever county you were driving through and have little things about what the local sites were and a lot of you know, places of interest, people of note, historical stuff. Just these little volumes. It kind of had a similar vibe to Scarfolk initially, I thought. Yes, yes, it does have that similar kind of flavour. Um, and there's other things. There's the American uh, podcast Night Vale, which also does this thing of creating a completely fictional place. Um, so you can have this idea of so the psychogeography as somewhere that doesn't exist, which is about as postmodern as you can get. Now, the thing about Hookland is that it started out that the guy created it, David Southwell, who is just the most fabulous human being. I'm, I'm honoured to describe him as my sensei. He started very early like I did. Um, um, but he also had a, a sideline as a true crime and conspiracy journalist, like writing on this, on, on this shit for years. But once when he was at the BBC, he had a chance encounter where he was able to blag a lift in a taxi with J.G. Ballard. So he gets himself in, in the thing. He basically, he lied about 
the, the taxi. Oh, you're going my way. Can I jump in with you? So I sit in the back of this cab with Jim Bellard, and they're just having a matter. Because, you know, why the fuck wouldn't you if you had the chance? So he's just hanging out with, with, with Ballard. They get talking. And Ballard stops suddenly. He says to him, you need to write about place. Nothing without a sense of it is worth a damn. And that changed his life. That moment, it's just like a couple of years later, the entire Hookland universe downloaded itself into his head and has been writing about it ever since. Um, but to the point where there's now like horror novels set there. There's a couple of movies. There's a, a trilogy of orchestral suites based on the, the, the mythology and the folk practices of Hookland. And this completely fictional place has become so real to people like me and, and, and loads and loads of other people online. I absolutely feel you on that. Like um, I've been following the Hookland stuff and I, I sometimes when I take a picture, I just think that's, that's, that's from Hookland. Yeah, yeah, absolutely that. And so what what, what I kind of say about it is um, Scarfolk is the fiction place where if you, were the, if you were there, you'd want to try and escape. Night Vale, particularly for American and uh, queer people, is the place where you want to go. But Hookland is the place where, where some people just remember they came from. Yeah, yeah. And it very much fits with uh, the writings of Mark Fisher about hauntology and that kind of stuff. Hookland is a, is a very much a Fisher-verse in my, in my mind anyway. Absolutely. Yeah, also worth reading on, on, on this kind of stuff is a guy called Gareth Rees, who's just released a book um, called Unofficial Britain, which is about finding the, the modern folklore mythology of urban commonplace places he did a book a couple of years ago called car park life which was literally just about car parks as a place of liminal encounters yeah liminal spaces between yes. places yeah absolutely that and his, his recent book kind of expands on that idea and they're both just absolutely bloody brilliant and the, i think it's the first chapter of unofficial britain is talking about electricity pylons and he specifically refers to Hookland and the mythology of the children of the hum. The hippies who used to follow pylons and, and the electrical elect, electricity lines as though they were ley lines. Which also takes us back to ASMR, I guess. Doesn't it, though? <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 again, it comes down to this essential subjectivity of weird shit. It's something that happens to you, and how you respond to it is partly up to you, but a lot of it is kind of like imprinted fairly early on. And you can train yourself out of these habits. A lot of magic is like, you know, repetition and training yourself. It's almost like advertising in a sense. It's like taking a set of symbols and just repeating them over and over again until they take on a particular meaning for you. Yep, which is, you know, the, I guess the, the idea of the hypersigil. Yes. Something that, that with the, with those imageries and, and rituals and codes buried throughout it. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure David would 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 cop to um, Hookland being a hyper sigil as such, but it is absolutely an act of magic which is grounded in place. Yes, and in people too, because it's kind of collaborative. It's an internet uh, thing. Yes, you know? it's so open. The, the fact that he made Hookland open source yes. deliberately, sir. Literally, the uh, the only rules are: don't take credit for it. If you're going to make something that that you sell for money for it, give us a credit and no fucking Nazis. 
yes no fucking nazis which actually you talked earlier about wicca and how um you know people think of wicca as a, a tradition going back centuries but that it's a fairly modern thing that yes. kind of like placed itself as being uh endless or timeless and uh, um i kind of feel the same thing about paganism like modern paganism sure that while it's a sincere and deeply held belief it's a recreation of something that was essentially erased from british culture uh, such as if such a thing exists by the romans you know it's like and, and by christianity it was thoroughly stamped out this idea of what we've forgotten can it be recreated in the now in the real short answer no what you can do is you can do something that honors it um, I mean, not everything about those traditions was destroyed. Uh, some elements remained often within folklore, within within folk culture, within things like Morris men practices and just those weird little rituals that, that small villages have. Or they were incorporated, like moving the dates of Christmas and Easter. Sure. I mean, the, the, there's there's some controversies just just how much of, of of the Christmas and Easter stuff actually was pagan. Um, it's just like every year, my dear friend Adrian Bott, who I've known for like you know half, over half my life, is um, an occultist and a scholar of the occult who's gone back and investigated all this stuff, and uh, particularly about how this idea that Christmas is a pagan festival really it doesn't quite hold true. Mm. If you look at the, the most of the symbols of it, do come from like you know, fifteenth century German Christian traditions, and th- that whole idea of oh no, it's the remnants of the old religion doesn't quite hold. But there's no reason b- because it's not actually quite true. Doesn't mean you can't work with it, can't find something genuine. Because if you can work with John fucking Constantine, you can work with her and the Hunter. So you very much believe that it can be authentic without being kind of like rigidly connected to tradition. It, authenticity um, is a movable feast. Uh, I think what, what you have to do is you can always, you can always draw on yourself and find that inner authenticity of the thing that's absolutely true and holds value for you. But the trick comes when you try and impose that meaning on other people. Because, for example, the pagan wheel of the year. Okay, lots and lots of pagans talk about this idea that there are these distinct festivals. There's the four main sabbats and then there's the the four esbets on the other side and it's like you so you got you got your lamas you got your imbolc you got your beltane and and all these different festivals and so they maybon that's the one they actually invented the word maybon as a term for for harvest festival and this was just some american pagan guy in the 80s literally just pulled this out of his ass but they've been treating it as canon ever since. Mm. Lots and lots of pagans will, will honour the Wheel of the Year and hold val- yeah, genuinely valid, beautiful, meaningful ceremonies on those dates. But there has never been a single historical culture until now which has worshipped on all of those dates. Nowhere. Um, the guy, Ron, uh, Professor Ronald Hutton, he's extensively... Um, gone into the actual history of, of witchcraft, particularly British witchcraft, and shown where the gaps are and where the stuff has been made up. But at the same time, he does honour the fact that paganism is a genuine, powerful, beautiful religious belief. Um, so that idea of authenticity, is, and that's again an idea from, from chaos magic, is that authenticity is not actually necessary for a magical or religious experience.
have this idea of the separation of magic and science and even statecraft, which is completely nonsensical if you apply that to the the uh, Elizabethan court, say, where you had John Dee. The, 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 the fusion of what they saw as like spiritual beliefs or uh, philosophy or scientific inquiry, they were all the same thing. Yeah, Isaac Newton is, is the classic example of that. Most of Newton's writing was on alchemy the vast majority of it when he wasn't like you know pretty much inventing model modern physics or running the bank of england and that's what i didn't understand was that without alchemy there is no chemistry there is no biology in the modern sense that produced medicine exactly and the interesting thing there of course is is how often western views of that completely leave out the fact that um a lot of this came from the fact the Muslim sources, particularly Sufi sources, were still working with what was supposedly the lost Greek corpus, which a lot of it, which was you know not available in Europe during the Dark Ages um, for for one reason or another. Most of it was just kept in monasteries and being copied over and over again. But the Muslims were still working with that gear. They still had the writings of Galen to base their medicine on. Alchemy is an Arab word, alchemia the dark art, with him being the pun which means either dark or secret or the literal meaning of the word, the name of Egypt, which is called the dark land because of the dark rich soil of the Nile. So even that word alchemy is a triple pun. Yeah, and all those owl words, they go back to to, to uh, Arab cultures. Uh, you know, algebra is, um, you yes. know, absolutely. So um, I, I think as well, you know, that's, that's going into the idea of Orientalism and the kind of imperial gaze. Yes. And, and I guess it takes us back to the meaning of the word occult in that it doesn't mean opposed to light. It doesn't mean dark. It means occluded. It means hidden. Yeah, and the, the thing that I've always thought about why it's hidden, I mean, yeah, the, there's various reasons. One was, you know, you had to kind of hide that stuff so the Inquisition didn't kill you. Yeah. Also because, you know, generally you know, these practices are, are kept secret and then, you know, then that has a certain aura to it and it intensifies experiences and so on. But what I think the actual reason is that whatever magic and weird shit is, it is extremely hard to put in human language. The, the, we can only really describe it in metaphor. The, you know, we, we, that any kind of like mathematical system to try and describe this stuff is always going to be missing something because of that subjectivity, because of this innate thing where it's basically describing the relationship between the observer and the universe, and every observer is different, and each observer is different from moment to moment. So magic is an attempt to try and, I think, build an internal continuity of all those different people we are at different stages in our lives, and try and arrange for them to be able to talk to each other and to talk to the universe and have something useful to say about it. There's a very good recent book about magic by a guy called Aidan Wachter. Um, it's called Six Ways. It's one of the best introduction manuals on magic I've read in years. And I recommend it highly to, to anybody. And what he talks about is something he calls the field. And the field is basically Tao. It's the entire universe out there that we can't act 
actually describe or we can describe are our relationships across the border to it. And I think all, all magic and occult systems are mostly describing the observer rather than what the actual field is, because we can't know that. The Tao that is expressed is not the eternal Tao, is one of the oldest ideas in, in philosophy. The idea that as soon as you try and put something into words, into symbols, something is lost. There's an immediateness, um, something that's pre-verbal, pre-linguistic in all this weird shit, uh, the wow moment. And for me, a lot of magic is basically, it's the field notes that people jotted down after the wow. And to treat them as anything more than that, to treat them as some kind of innate truth given to them for the universe gets you into trouble very, very quickly. And in a way that agrees with a lot of like uh, philosophers, what like Slavoj Zizek would say in uh, yeah. about ideology, which is that you can't view an ideology from out with the field of ideology, and that any yes. ideology that talks about itself as non-ideological is itself completely at its most ideological. Maybe there's something there in terms of um, the field of the real. The minute that you perceive it, it's not real. Yeah, and so what we, what we have to do is is we have to kind of like come up with these sets of symbols to try and compare notes, if we want to. I mean, a lot of people hoard their notes themselves. So, oh, no, no, you can't do this until you've come into our tradition and you've got X degrees, and so we can't tell the real secrets to you. But generally, they're not actually real secrets as such. It's like you you, you, you get to these, these higher levels and you, you they go, oh, yeah, there's a bit of sex magic in there. <laughs> oh really you shock me sir how 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 yeah how how original and, and, and completely unprecedented um but, so I, I what i like is when i can sit down with with magicians and and just just cut all the bullshit and just compare notes as people who've experienced the wow how much does this concern you this kind of new not new but resurgent connection between kind of magic and ritual and the far right it concerns me greatly and the only thing that i say about it is, is you have to take a stand against it so it's something that's very explicitly come up from hookland as i say has, has this very very explicit no nazis thing um the wonderful twitter tradition of the last few years of folklore thursday I love Folklore Thursday, yeah. Just wonderful. But they've had, in the last year or two, they've had a whole bunch of fascists showing up, mm. insisting on, the, on the, their kind of volkish nationalist version of things as being the absolute truth and all this other stuff is just later leftist invention. And it's, uh, But this stuff goes way, way back. In the actual origins of the Nazi party came from, you know, the, the whole volkish movement. Yeah. Drew heavily on these ideas of working with the land and the, deep spirituality of ruralness um yeah basically it, it's kind of like the the backwash of romanticism uh, as, as a kind of resistance against the idea of cities essentially of urbanization of yeah. industrialization so you had romanticism is, is this big kind of counterblast against that and it always had this elitist pure blood kind of bollocks to it even back then in like the 1820s and 30s 
in that sense is it always atavistic when it recurs i think so yeah it it it, it tends strongly to be atavistic but they're, but they're not above nicking the new stuff either they're perfectly happy to do that because you know they're fucking nazis <laughs> it's, it's not complicated it's it's like that old thing of um you know you know perfectly well from the music scene the you know if if you've got if you've got a, a, a club and you let the Nazis in, then it's a Nazi club from that point onwards. They'll just come in and they'll just swamp it, and it just they just take over whatever they fucking touch. Um, and yeah, the, the, the idea that this is acceptable in this day and age horrifies me. Um, I'm from a shithole town in Kent called Gravesend, um, Stocktown on the Thames. It's literally only known for the fact that it's where Pocahontas is buried. That's its only claim to fame. I mean, just down the road in Dartford is where Mick Jagger and Keith Richards were born. Uh, so the slight bit of fame for that. But that area, um, that particular part of the Thames estuary, has been a kind of fascist stronghold area since I was a kid. I mean, I grew up in you know, late 60s, early 70s, seeing swastika graffiti everywhere people chanting on the street if you don't support the front you're a cunt and this is what i remember from my childhood and i was naive enough to think it was gone and this 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 turn around this this revival of it as, as something that people actually want or think is is valid or good or or, or worth having it disgusts me on the cellular level and I just will stand against it. I will absolutely refuse to bow down to any kind of fascist agenda anywhere, particularly in the things I love. I think, you know, if you look at the guys like the Boogaloo, uh, you know, that were formed out of meme culture, that, that has heavy resonances with um, what we were talking about in terms of sigils and rallying points around images and archetypes. Um, you know, um, you've got... Uh, people writing these manifestos that influence each other and then become other manifestos and kind of contain these recurring tropes. Like, um, it's almost like the, the, a lot of the kind of bubbling under the underneath, underneath, not, not politically organized, but very politically opinionated that side of the right, um, are drawing on things that kind of maybe do have their origin in, in stuff like chaos magic do you think that's conscious or unconscious i i, I don't know in, in some places it is very very conscious there are people who are just just of that tendency whether whether they've been um you know kind of uh weaponized by the internet um which you know absolutely absolutely has happened um i don't know if you know the work of the writer john robb yeah. Uh, yeah, the guy who invented the term fourth generation warfare. Um, and his idea is that uh, modern communications technology has brought us to the point where force projection, in terms of the amount of damage a single person can do, has increased massively to the point with, with things like the internet, with things like the easy availability of drones, um, that effectively, if you want to be, anybody can become equiv the equivalent of a supervillain genocide in a can kind of thing. they've got yeah they've got the amount of kit that would be normally the, the back in the day would only have been available to a bond villain yeah but the the, the problem really came and the, that's absolutely there and it does appear in in certain occult frames there's a horrible sense of accelerationism 
in a lot of the kind of back to the land philosophies in in the occult, the the, the kind of apocalyptic witchcraft tendency of saying, oh yes, we should we should go back to the land. We should all just become hunter gatherers and go back into tribes because it's better now because modernism is rubbish and plastic is evil. It's that uh, kind of uh, um, eco fascist current. Yeah, exactly that. But what they don't do, and what they really don't like you telling them, and which I've done on several occasions, is to say, oh, what you're asking for is the genocide of billions, including pretty much all disabled people. And as a a crip with titanium in my spine, I really fucking take objection to that. In the next month or so, the magazine Rituals and Declarations will be having its fourth and last issue. It was always designed to be a a four-season project in 2020. Um, a guy called Paul Watson. And I have the honour of having an article in the last one which talks about all this stuff, which is called Plastic Alters Titanium Bones, um, which I hope some of you will uh, go out and read when it comes out next month. Fantastic. I mean, you talk about ritual there in the title of the magazine, and I guess that actually leads me into my final question, which is very neat. You almost anticipated that, like some kind of magician. Um, (laughs) So given that the dark forces are massing, given that in your practice you kind of talked about how ritual has helped you, but also helped you help others, what can we do um, in in a sense of like cultivating ritual behavior in a good way in our lives as beginners? As, as beginners, yeah, go out and get that book four ways. That is an excellent introduction in some of the basic techniques. Find something basic. Um, Grant Morrison's Pop Magic article, which is an excellent introduction to sigils, is out there. Just go out there, start doing some stuff. Be aware that it can bring out the dark side, what they call shadow work, that it's not all fluffy bunnies, it's not all peace and love. And if you treat it like it is, you can get bit in the arse quite nasty. It's probably a good idea to learn some kind of protective or defensive technique, some kind of shield work, some kind of grounding, some way to define your space as safe before you go into these realms. Because it's big stuff. It do it drags out every aspect of your personality if you go into this kind of thing deep. And when you're doing that in a group, you're going to get the usual problems of group dynamics where you're going to get someone who wants to be the high hegen and other people who just want to be the kind of supplicators of that and people who just want to follow. Um, so what? So my advice would be like, work on yourself, find perhaps small groups of, of people to work with, um, find something that stirs you. It's got to really grab you by the heart and balls or other genitalia that it's got to be something that draws you in, becomes all-encompassing while you're there. But always remember just to take that little step backwards and look at it and and go, yeah, I'm going to treat that as if it was real, as if that God is real, as if that really happened and changed the universe, not as real. Don't let yourself ever get trapped in dogma, particularly one you've invented yourself. And, yeah, talk to the land. You don't have to do, make a big thing out of it. These ideas of, of psychogeography, of the derive, as being some kind of scholarly pursuit, it's not. It's just getting out there and feeling what your local place is like. It may have things that 
relate to you in the form of spirits. It might just be a vibe. It might just be like a friendly corner you can work in. But you can do this anywhere. It doesn't have to be rural. It doesn't have to be sacred. It doesn't have to be a big back to nature thing. You can do this in the back alley. You can do this in the McDonald's. You can do this anywhere you can draw breath. That's a fantastic place to finish. Listen, I hope you'll come back on, Kat, and talk about some more of these ideas. Love to, mate. Listen, I've got so much more to ask you about. So uh, thank you very much for that. And um, enjoy the rest of your day, man. Thank you very much for coming on the podcast. You too. Take care, Bram. Be good, mate. So that was writer and magician Ian Cat Vincent. We've got a link to his blog in the description of this episode. He mentioned a few books uh, in our chat today as well. If you subscribe to our newsletter at bit.ly forward slash strange exiles, we'll post links to those books. Whether you leave this episode today believing in magic or not, I hope it's been a fascinating journey. And I hope you'll join us for next month's guest, radical poet David Lee Morgan. You've been listening to Strange Exiles. Take care of each other.